been in the pulpit for a lot of years, and that is you always have a sermon ready, just in case. And when you see on your caller ID that your pastor is calling on a Saturday night, you know it's not necessarily a good call, but I answered anyway and, uh, and uh, talked to Jamie last night, and, and he just said, he said, man, I, he said, in 15 years, I don't think I've ever had to miss preaching because of being sick, but I don't feel right. And I'll talk to you again in the morning. He called me this morning early and said, brother, you're up. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we do want to pray for Jamie and his family. I think the rest of the family has been sick as well. Uh, but it is, it's a privilege to be before you this morning. And I'd ask if you'd turn in your Bibles to the book of James this morning. We're actually going to be in James in chapter 2. James is one of my very favorite books in the entire Bible. It's, uh, it's one that I, I always like to go back to. I like to study again. And I think it's because the book of James is written... It's written in such plain English and so direct, even more than, you know, when, when you go to school, in Bible school, and you take Greek, you start in the book of John, because John was written in a plain man's Greek, and it's, and it's easy to start with, and it's easy to read. You progress to Luke much later, because Luke was a very educated man, and he wrote in a very different style than John did. I prefer James, because James, he's easily written and he just says it like it is. And while we don't know exactly for sure who the author of James is, which James it might be, we, historically we assume and understand that it would be James the brother of Jesus. And it was written later in, in, the, in the New Testament uh, as the church had already been established. But James writes in a way where he doesn't, you might say, pull any punches. He says it like it is, like it or lump it. And I tend to be that kind of guy. I say what I think, like it or lump it, this is what you're going to get. And so I probably identify with him pretty easily. I chose chapter 2 this morning out of the book of James because it's, it's a chapter that speaks to me personally at least. Something that constantly reminds me of the things that I need to be doing in my life as a Christian, as a follower of Christ. It talks about our faith. And so we want to talk about faith this morning as we read God's word together. Before we do, let's just take a moment and ask God to bless his word. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the ability, the privilege to be here, to worship together, to study your word, to Lord, to have your spirit enlighten our hearts simply by the reading of your word, that it stands alone, that Father, the the knowledge, the wisdom, and the words that you give us are from you and from your spirit. And Lord, we just ask that that spirit would speak to each one of us today. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We're actually going to cover the entire chapter, uh, chapter 2 of the book of James. uh, But I promise I'm not going to read every verse. We might be here just a little bit if I did that. But I want to start in chapter 2, verse 1, where it says, My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. For if a man comes into your assembly with a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and there also comes in a poor man in dirty clothes, and you pay special attention to the one who is wearing the fine clothes and say, you sit here in a good place, and you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down by my footstool. Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Listen, my beloved brethren. Did God not choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him. James, many of the letters in our New Testament are all written to churches and written to address 
problems, unfortunately, that were occurring in the churches. There, there's doctrinal statements and there's things that teach us about Christ, about the Spirit, uh, about just Christian doctrine in general. But oftentimes, each one of those letters had a purpose in that there was problems that were occurring in the churches that were spread out. Now, the book of James is addressing a particular problem. Thankfully, not a problem maybe like 1 Corinthians was addressing, uh, or, or 2 Corinthians and the reconciliation of that problem, but a problem nonetheless. And the problem was this, a problem that occurs, I think, in still many of our churches today, if there were distinctions being made among the membership of the church. We understand that we are all one in Jesus Christ and that we are all equal under Jesus Christ, that there is no distinctions in the body of Christ, and yet as humanity and as people, we make distinctions among ourselves, and that's what was happening in the early church. They would, they would be meeting together just as much as, as we are here today, maybe in a little less formal setting, but nonetheless, and, and people would walk in, guests, visitors would walk in uh, during that service, and a visitor might walk in who was a wealthy individual, who was well-dressed, it said, who wore a gold ring, upon their finger, and favoritism would be shown to that person. They would be greeted by the greeters right out front saying, oh, welcome to our service today. We're so glad to have you. Here, let me escort you and find a nice seat up front before the congregation so that you can hear what's being said and you can be a part of the service in that way. And then another person might come in and yet that person is poor. That person may barely have clothes on at all much less fine clothes and certainly no jewelry and no gold rings upon their person. And that person, they would say, well, here, you, you stand in this back corner because we really don't want to see you like we want to see the rich man up front or sit here at my feet on the floor by my footstool. And James says, you have shown partiality within the church, and that is a sin. What's the sin of? He says it's a sin of judgment that you are actually proclaiming judgment within the church, and that is not our responsibility. That is not what we are to do. It says in verse 4, Have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? Now, surely we're above those things, are we not? Uh, fortunately, I think many times we are not. That we do show favoritism and partiality. Now, I, when I grew up in First Baptist... You know, we wore suits on Sunday. That's just the way it was. And the pastor always wore a suit. And when we came back, and Jamie, and I saw him, and, and I have, I've seen him in a suit once, and that was because he stopped by my office on a day he had a funeral that day as well, and he had a suit on that day. And he normally dresses as I'm dressed now. He dresses nicely, very presentable, but he's not wearing a suit. Well, that was maybe unheard of a long time ago. And so we might think, well, because appearances... They're, they're not so important. And absolutely, appearances are not so important. And yet, don't we still place value upon those things just as much as maybe the early church did? That we look at how a person is dressed and maybe the label upon their clothing to see if we might like them more than a person who walks in who is maybe a little bit dirty, who hasn't had a bath in a while, whose clothes are tattered and torn. These are same ch issues that the early church dealt with very early on when i was uh beginning my professional ministry i guess you might say uh there was a, a, pan, a retired pastor who who kind of mentored me in a lot of ways and and he gave me a book that i i look back on that book a little bit now and it was 
it was steeped in old Baptist tradition. And many of you have heard the name W.A. Criswell. And uh, he's, he's a giant in, in Baptist faith and down in Texas. And uh, he wrote a book called W.A. Criswell's Guidebook for Pastors. And I got that book as a gift. Not, you know, being a young guy, I was thinking, man, I've got to read this cover to cover, memorize everything, because this guy is the example. And, and he made statements such as, on Sunday morning, make sure that your nails are trimmed, that your collar is pressed, that every, I mean, all the little things about how you were to look before you could enter the pulpit on a Sunday morning. And so, man, I took that, because that was right up my alley. You know, I was taught to dress anyway in church, and I shined my shoes on Saturday nights. Uh, I mean, that, who shines their shoes anymore? Guess what? I still do. I shine my shoes most every Saturday night. It's just a habit that, that's come about over time. But, you know, I, I read that, and, I, and, he's, and he pointed out something in that about human nature in writing that book. He said, he shared the example of a story. He was out on the farm one day, and he was working. He was in his coveralls, and they were out doing what farmers do, and he smelled like farmers tend to smell after they've been out working. And someone was injured. And he took that injured person to the hospital, and he's dressed, again, boots, manure, coveralls, the whole nine yards, and couldn't seem to get the appropriate response that he was looking for from the emergency room until a nurse rec- recognized him and said, oh, oh, Dr. Chriswell, what can I do for you? Recognized who he was, but because he wasn't dressed in his suit that day, he didn't receive the same treatment that he might have because they were showing partiality. It's human nature. We have to overcome that human nature sometimes by the people that we see every day. And not prejudge those people simply by their appearances. And that's what James warns us about in this area. But he goes further. He's not just talking about the sin of partiality in James chapter 2. He takes this a step further and says something about the man who comes in naked and about the poor. And, you know, one thing that he says there is in verse 4 again, he says, You stand over there, excuse me, have you not made distinctions among yourselves, become judges with evil motives? Verse 5, listen, my beloved brethren, did not God choose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him? When we show partiality, for whatever reason, we reverse God's economics. Because God says that he shows that favor, that they have been chosen, the poor of this world, to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom of God. Why is that? Because that's all they've got. If you have money in your bank account and you blew out tires on your car, what do you do? Go get new tires on your car. I had to do that this week. It's expensive. If you don't have any money in your bank account and you blow out the tires on your car, what do you do? Boy, you better get down on your knees and pray because you don't know how you're going to make it around. You see the difference between the rich and the poor oftentimes? The poor live every day by faith because they have to, while the rich man lives every day by the means in his bank account or in his wallet, oftentimes. These are general distinctions. I'm not saying anything about any particular individual. Wealth is not a bad thing. It's good to have, and it's good to be able to help those who do not. 
But if we do not help those who do not, then we, we do not follow God's commands, quite honestly. Skip down to verse 14. James talks about this sin of partiality and about the transgressions of judgment. And actually in verse 13 he says, For judgment will be merciless to the one who has shown no mercy, because mercy triumphs over judgment. And then he makes this transition between the sin of partiality and the things that are going in verse 14 when he says, What use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it is no works, is dead, being by itself. See, it wasn't just that the early church was showing favoritism to the rich man and setting aside the poor man. But they were doing it with smiles on their faces as if they were just good Christian people. Because then they would have their service, they would take the poor man who was naked, who had no food, who had nothing in his belly, and they'd go and they'd greet him by the hand and say, be warm and well fed, goodbye. And yet he walked out the doors still naked and still hungry, rather than ministering to them in the name of Jesus and showing them the Christian love. And he says, That's not faith in Christ. Because what good is it if you say you have faith and have nothing to back it up? In other words, that you're not doing anything. In our Sunday school class this morning, Jose read out of Ephesians in chapter 2 where it says you were made for good works. You as Christians, your duty is, is to follow through and to do the works that God has created you for. We establish our faith that we have salvation not by works but by faith again in ephesians so that no one can boast it's the free gift of god is what scripture tells us and yet sometimes we cling so much onto that that we're saved by faith it's not by what we do that we forget that what we do reflects our faith in verse 18, James writes, But someone may well say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, and I will show you my faith by my works. There's something I like to refer to as the Jesus zipper. And that would be, it would be really nice if you had a zipper that went from here to here. Might be nice for cardiologists as well. But if you could just unzip that, look inside, and say, There's Jesus, we're good to go, let's move on. But you know what? There's no Jesus zipper. We can't look inside of each one of you. You can't look inside of me and find out whether Jesus is in there or not. It doesn't work that way. How do we know if Jesus is in the heart of the believer? Through what they profess? A lot of people profess to know God. 90% of America says they believe in God. And a large percentage say that they believe in Jesus Christ, that they're Christians. But how do we really know? says by their works by what they do how they fulfill that verse 19 says you believe in god is one great you do well says the demons also believe and shudder 
You can go around saying that you believe God all that you want to, but if there's nothing to back that up, it says even the demons believe that there's God, but they certainly don't have an eternity in their, or salvation. They have no time in heaven because they're the demons. They believe in God. It's not enough to believe in God. It's got to be more than that. You've got to have a faith, a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And how is that faith demonstrated? James says it's demonstrated by what you do. You show the evidence by what you do in your daily life. Verse 20, But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Faith without works is useless. Now, is he saying that faith is useless if you don't do anything? It's not what he's saying. He says genuine faith is demonstrated by those works. Because if you say you have faith and there's nothing there backing it up, then that is a useless faith because that is not a saving faith in Jesus Christ. If you are willing to just simply say, I believe in Jesus, I'm going to repent of my sins, and there's nothing that ever happens, did you really commit your life to Jesus? Did you really have a saving faith in that? The answer, my friend, is no. No. You can't just go on living your life the exact same way that you did before you knew Jesus. There must be a change. There must be something. There must be a demonstration of your faith through ministry. And when I say ministry, don't freak out on me and think, oh, I've got to teach a Sunday school class. No, you don't. Or I've got, to, I've got to do a certain thing. I've got to find a position in the church to serve. That would be awesome. But no, you don't. A demonstration of your faith through your works is a daily ministry that occurs in your life. In the life of your family. Does your family, those people in your own home and household, know by the things that you do that you're a Christian? I mean, that's the place to start. It's right there at home. Does your life demonstrate your love of Christ? That's the works that James talks about here. He gives us a couple examples. Verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works as a result, excuse me, as, with his works as a result of the works faith was perfected and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Stop there. Father Abraham. I mean, we've heard about him since we were small and in Sunday school. We can recognize him and that he did amazing and great things. He is a giant of the faith. When you go and turn over to Hebrews chapter 11, he's one of those guys who were mentioned there. Father Abraham. And the reason that he was said to have so much faith is what? Because everything else he did? Because that he believed God when God said, Abraham, even though you are old, you're going to have children, that your descendants are going to be numerous as the sands by the sea? Is that why it says that Abraham was a giant of the faith? No, he did. He believed God. Sarah laughed. But Abraham believed God. He didn't know how it was going to happen, and he thought it was a little bit ridiculous. But Abraham believed God when he said, you are going to have descendants more than you could even count. But is that why it says Abraham was faithful? That's not why. 
It says, Abraham was faithful because when he had that child, when he had that son Isaac, and God had said to him, I want you to take Isaac up on the mountain, and there I want you to kill him, to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham went and did it, went as far as to strap his son Isaac down, raised the knife above his head of his only son, and ready to take his life before God stopped him and provided the sacrifice. That's why it says right here that Abraham was faithful. Not because what he believed in his heart when he said about his descendants, but because what he was willing to do for God. Because he was willing to follow through on what he believed. Not just that he believed it, but that he was willing to do something about it. That his actions would demonstrate it. Well, we can look at Abraham as a giant of the faith and and be so proud of that. But you know a story we don't hear about quite as often when we are young? It's the next verse. Verse 25 that says, In the same way was not Rahab, the harlot, also justified by works, when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Well, we like to hear about Abraham, but now the prostitute, Rahab? This, this woman of, of ill reputation, who not only in faithful circles would be looked up down upon, but generally in society was looked down upon. And she is also mentioned here, she's also mentioned in Hebrews, as a giant of the faith. And why? Because she heard about God, she believed in God, and she was willing to put her life and the life of her family on the line because of what she believed. She did something about it. We also find Rahab in another place in Scripture, several other places. But one is in the John chapter 1. There's a study for you to do sometime. Take the five women who are mentioned in John in chapter 1. Rahab's one of them who we also see later on in the line of Jesus Christ. The prostitute, the harlot, a giant of the faith because she was willing to risk her life, the life of her family, to hide the spies as they came in to take over the city. Because of what she did. It would be easy to take someone like that and say, well, that's great that you're a believer and everything else, but would you believe it if she hadn't done what she had done? a giant of the faith that says, just as the body without the spirit of dead, so also faith without works is dead. How do you, if you come across somebody lying there, how do you know whether they're dead or alive? Well, if you're a doctor, you might go through several steps. You know, some of the steps I might go through is just kind of kick them in a little bit and see if they move. Um, and that might not be very scientific, but, you know, <laughs> it's a good check to begin with for me. I, I don't know. I'm not great at taking a pulse, so probably and practically, if I was really worried whether they're dead or not, I'd get down real close to them, maybe get close to their face and see if they were what? If they're breathing. Works is the breath of faith. If you want to see whether faith is really alive, check and see if it's breathing, if it's doing something, if it's active. We need to find ways to live out our faith. That's what James is telling us here. Yes, he's addressing a particular problem that was occurring in the church. 
This problem of showing favoritism. This problem of distinction between the rich and poor. And he was going through all that and he was using this to help fix that problem. But it goes much further than that. It's, it's not just about rich and poor. And it's not just about showing favoritism or not within the church. It's not even about judging as much. It's about the body of Christ living out what we believe in our hearts every day. That if we are going to be in a live church, that if we are going to, to be a church that is working, that is moving, that a church that people are talking about, a church of, man, that is a church of faith, then we can't be just a church that listens to the Word on Sunday morning and if we're real good Christians on Sunday night and Wednesday too. We need to be a church that is living out what we hear and what we believe. We are, we are so fortunate that we have a pastor who stands up every Sunday and preaches the Word faithfully, accurately, and unashamedly. Our responsibility as a congregation is to be Christians of faith that will live that out. That will step out and do. To be doers of the word and not just hearers. Because knowledge, my friends, leads to pride. And pride to destruction. And all the things that come with that. But service, service leads to humility. To faithfulness. And to glorification of our God and our Savior, who was willing to leave heaven and all of the glory that came with that to serve us. You know, if you've ever been poor in your life, and many of us have, we know what it is to rely upon others and the generosity of others many times. Think of this, that Jesus, when he left heaven, left all of his resources, all of his power, and gave that up to come here and to serve us. It would be like liquidating all of our assets and giving them away. The best, at least the best that we can relate to it. And then being, and coming and putting yourself out there to rely completely upon everyone else. To give away all of your power that which you're used to using, your cell phones and your wallets and credit cards. That's the economics of heaven, is reliance upon God. Provide, and then our response to serve. Let's go to him in prayer today. Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for those who served as examples of the faith. And Lord, I pray that we would just look for opportunities to serve you in, in everyday life. That Lord, as we grow in our knowledge of you, and as we grow in our relationship with you, that we're a mirror of that and a reflection of that. That Lord, we would serve you. And that Father, that, that we would have an active and a living faith by doing the things that you command us, by looking to those who are around us. Lord, not just, not just giving to the poor and, and, and not just serving in those type of manners, Lord, but um, serving everyone, 
those who are around us, those who have need, those who are heartbroken, those who are ill, that, Lord, your love would be shown through us. Lord, I just pray that we be not offended by your word, but we be convicted. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Let's stand.